Peace world, peace world. It's your man and Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. It's a new second. It's a new minute. It's a new hour. It's a new day. It's a new week. It's a new month. And with that new month comes another round. And ladies and gentlemen, the gym doors are now open, so make sure you enter in. And there's the treadmill. There is your bike. There's the rope. And start warming up. And there's the bag. Go ahead and get on it. And in this sparring gym with me today, all the way from Illinois, Mr. Corey Hall. Mr. Corey Hall, are you there, sir? What's up, man? I'm here. All right. See? Tell you, folks. Got this brother all the way from Illinois. Hey, and you're going to get a chance to hear this brother's story, why he almost threw in the towel, why he still keeps his towel. So you're going to get a chance to hear from him. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and let's get into this sparring round. Let's get ahead and get into this gym and start warming up. And let's get into the ring and start handling business. Mr. Hall, are you ready, sir? I'm ready, man. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, get out the corner. And let's go ahead and start the Mr. Hall. And, and Boogie is in the middle of the ring. Let's touch gloves because the round has officially started. Let's get this going. So, Corey, just put us into the time machine. Let's start this off where it all started for you. When I was seven years old, uh, and, you know, I, I grew up, you know, in a different kind of raisin. You know, I was raised by my grandparents for the better part of my life. Uh, when I was a kid, you know, I, I was six or seven years old and I got the information that no kid ever wants to be given when uh, my mama sat me down and she explained to me uh, in not so many words that my daddy wasn't really my daddy um, and that was absolutely just mind blow me um, you know to wrap that thought around my mind so her way of saying that you know mama and daddy were getting divorced you know my mom and dad split well was my dad at that point was my mind frame and um we took off you know we moved out of state for a little while where my mom's daddy lived at didn't care for life there a whole lot you know i went from small town living to big city living and, and even for a kid that's a big that's a big culture change when you go from being in a school this relatively small to go into a school where there's as many kids and just your you know, your grade as there was in the entire school grew up in, it was a culture shock. Um, I didn't know that schools were allowed to have swimming pools inside. Ours did. Um, you know, the library was, I remember, I, I don't know why, but I remember the library of this school and it was just this massive, massive place. Um, you know, the whole school was just this massive structure. And uh, that was everything kind of in my life at that point was everything seemed like this massive thing around me that I just couldn't wrap my head around. I ended up, you know, out of state with my mom after my parents split and uh, my mom got remarried not too long after that. Wasn't that great of a guy. Uh, you know, he had a bad, bad drinking problem. He was a bad alcoholic. Wasn't abusive to me um, at all. Wasn't abusive to his son, my stepbrother. He was abusive to my mom. I found out later he was he was very abusive to my mom. Thank God I never had to endure through any physical abuse. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but, you know, I grew up, you know, seeing, you know, beer bottles fly across the room and everything you could ever imagine as far as, you know, a shouting match and a screaming match and, you know, getting woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning because he was drunk off his butt and he'd ordered pizza and decided that we were hungry even though we were in bed dead asleep. So that kind of became the the trend. That was life. And then things didn't go well, obviously, in that marriage. And my mom got out. Well, when my mom got out of that marriage, she got out to, uh, you know, she didn't have anywhere to go. She just wanted out. Um, and good for her that she got out of that. But, uh, you know, that pretty well put her homeless for a moment. You know, she was kind of couch surfing and with some friends for a little while, trying to get her back on her feet, figure out what she was going to do. Well, she was you know, more or less homeless, um, living at a friend's house with, you know, her son and, you know, obviously life wasn't what it should be for a kid. So, um, she did the tough thing and she, uh, called her parents and, uh, her mom and, um, her, my grandmother, my granddad, they came out, they came up and picked me up, loaded up all my things. And I, uh, that was the last time I ever lived, you know, out of state. But that was also the last time that I would ever have a, nor quote, normal relationship, you know, living at home with my parents from that day forward. I grew up with my grandparents. You know, I moved back back to where home was for me in southern Illinois. 
you know, went back to school. You know, now I, I live this different lifestyle. Um, I'm not living with mom anymore. You know, she's trying to put her life back together. Now I'm living, you know, it was supposed to be a better atmosphere for me. But the problem was that, you know, my atmosphere at home wasn't all that better than what it was. Uh, my granddad was an alcoholic. He was a functioning alcoholic, much like my stepdad was. He worked all day worked his butt off he made good money doing it uh but you know on the weekends he wasn't home very much he was either on drinking or he was just out the backyard drinking or you know there was beer involved pretty dysfunctional relationship that my grandparents had and technically that wasn't even my grandfather that was my grandmother's second husband so one day she got tired of his crap gave him the boot he left when he moved out you know so now i'm stuck you know in this mind frame again of uh you know i'm i'm just a kid i've just got told my daddy's not really my daddy i've went through this move this other move and now the father figure in my life that was my granddad has now you know been kicked out and uh you know on top of all of that my mind is swimming i i went through this period in my life where oh looking back i'm so sorry to to the people i did this to but i I had figured out how to use the internet when I was a little bit older and I figured out that you can find people on the internet. So I went to like all these different websites and uh, I knew my mom had told me my, my biological father's name and I had his name, his first and last name and the town that she lived in. That's all I knew. So I was like searching on like findpeople.com or this name and this town. And I would find these guys and it would give you addresses. And I was writing letters and mailing them to every guy under that name I could find. I probably mailed like 15 or 20 of these letters out. And uh, I actually got a few responses back. One was like some really, really old guy who, you know, was like, I'm sorry, son, I'm not your dad. But, you know, it was it was this very pitiful thing that I tried to do. Wow. So you got Maury before Maury. You are not oh, yeah. the father. My man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't quite as dramatic, but. <laughs> yeah, there was never a DNA test, though. So, you know, I went through all that. and I just had this deep, this deep-seated desire to figure out who my daddy was, where I came from. You know, I, I didn't learn until much later in life how natural that desire is within people but i was experiencing that uh, that sensation and that desire at a very early point in my life and i was probably i don't know 12 13 years old somewhere in that area uh maybe a little bit younger when i kind of went through that that period where i was doing that so after my, my granddad got you know, kicked out of the house it wasn't much longer one day um the phone rang at, at home and we still had a you know, some millennials are going to freak out here because they don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But phones used to be connected to the wall and you didn't carry it around to Walmart with you. You had to use it in the house, in one room of the house. Cause it Anyway, so we had a phone that was, <laughs> it, it was wireless, but uh, it was plugged in one of the old-fashioned caller IDs. Yep. So, it was, you know, you had a separate device that showed you who was calling your house. And that was high tech, you know, 1997. Then, yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. So it was. the phone rang and the caller ID said this name and the, the, the name on the caller ID said American Legion. And I didn't know what that was. So I answered the phone. And again, I'm seven, eight years old. This guy asks for my grandmother. And I don't know who this guy is, but I immediately did not like this guy. Like, you know, I don't know who you are, who you're, what you're doing, calling my grandma, but you know, you don't belong around here. Well, it wasn't much longer that he starts coming around the house and then one thing leads to another. And before you know it, he's moved into the house. And then before you know it, there's a wedding happening in my living room. And this guy is marrying my grandmother. Um, and you know, I, I was again in that headspace of, you know, what does this guy think he's doing? You know, you're not going to replace my granddad, you know, me and my granddad that, got booted out me and him were tight man that was you know my best friend when i was a kid and uh to lose him in my life was just absolutely detrimental to me my grandma got remarried and you know this guy's supposed to be a better guy a little time went by of course the first place he called my grandmother from was an american legion you know he's 
calling from the bar and uh you know it, it didn't take long before realized oh this guy's got a drinking problem too so there's this pattern now in my life of um of alcoholics and divorce and dysfunction i'm seven eight nine years old and i'm seeing you know this dysfunction this mass dysfunction and you know i i tell that story a lot and i think you know some people hear my story and they probably go man if you had it good if you knew what I went through as a kid, but you know, I, I didn't have any friends that had stories like, you know, I didn't have friends whose parents were crackheads or, you know, had been in the joint, you know, I didn't have that context. This was the context I had, you know, I grew up loving old school TV shows. I wasn't watching the stuff kids my age were watching. I was growing up watching um, you know, shows like, you know, uh, the Brady Bunch and all the other kids are watching Degrassi. I'm watching Leave it to Beaver at night because, you know, that was my mind. My mind was this picture perfect white picket fence house, you know, you know, perfect loving family. And I, I just knew that that's not what I had. You know, I didn't have this normal, great, picturesque Hollywood family. I had this dysfunctional version of that. And I, I was so anxious to have the normal life, but it, but it seemed like I, I never got that. I, you know, that's what I wanted so bad, but I never got there. So were um, those shows like an escapism for you? Yeah. You know, I think they were. I think they were because what child in their right mind would be watching TV shows 25 years, you know, prior to his generation. But yeah, I think it was. I think subconsciously that was. I don't think it was a conscious thought, but I think subconsciously that's that's what I was looking for. And I was finding, you know, some relief and peace. Some time went by, you know, now I'm, you know, my life is no different. My grandma's life is really no different. Now she's just married to a different alcoholic. And it, it, as time would go by, I think I was 11 years old. I wasn't one of the popular kids at school. You know, I was just kind of done with the way my life was. And it was just, you know not great. I, I was, you know, my granddad, you know, he was an alcoholic, but also with, with him marrying my grandmother, you know, these aren't young people that are getting married. These are well, my grandmother, my grandfather, they both have grandkids and, you know, they both have kids that are grown and grandkids that, you know, that phase of raising children in both of their lives is really kind of done with, but my grandma has taken on this responsibility of, of, of raising me and, you know, my granddad married this woman, you know, his school sweetheart and married her and he's beyond that point in his life. And now I'm there, not in his desires, you know, his idea of a, of a great wedding is not raising a kid. You know, he's raised his kids. This is far outside the bounds of what he would have imagined this fantastic marriage to be. So I felt like, you know, for a long time that there was some resentment there that my granddad, you know, don't want to, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but he just, he didn't like me, you know, felt like I was the burden in his life at that point. You know, he married my grandmother. I was the baggage that came with that marriage. Um, and, and I felt like, you know, he probably did what every good man does. He lied and said, oh, it'll be fine. But inside he thought, I can't stand having this child around me all the time. Um, so that was difficult, um, you know, sensing that resentment, even at that age, I, I knew that there was resentment there. And, uh, my granddad was a hard man to live with. My granddad was a good man, but he was a hard man to live with. You know, he, he demanded respect. He, he required obedience and submission again, not in a violent way. He, he could say more with, with five words than Bowden could say with five punches. And, and he utilized that in a great way, uh, maybe in an abusive way, some people might say. Um, but I was so just mentally a mess. You know, I was just this kid with all these things running through my head all at one time. And my mind had kind of got to be this big rat's nest of, of, of thoughts and I just got to a point where I was, I was just done. You know, I'd, I'd had enough and, you know, just problems at school, being a kid, not having really any friends, being the unpopular kid, getting picked on a little bit. Um, you know, I, I was just done. 
And I remember one night, uh, I don't know why, but I was home by myself and, um, I walked to my granddaddy's room and I knew exactly, you know, where he, where he kept certain things. And I knew where he kept his guns and I knew exactly where my granddad kept his 357. And I, I picked up his 357 and it was his revolver and I popped it open and I dropped all the shells out of it. I put it back and I spun the cylinder and I remember I held that gun to the side of my head and I squeezed the trigger and I just wanted to hear the gun click and I didn't even want to commit suicide. I wanted to commit suicide. I didn't want to because I was afraid that I would mess it up and I wouldn't do it right. And that if I didn't do it right, that I would get in trouble. And I was more afraid of getting in trouble for not doing it right than if I died. That's the kind of tension that existed between me and my granddad. Wow. That that his anger was greater to me than death itself. Um, so you know, I, I just I really just wanted to hear the click and know if this is the last thing I hear, what is it gonna be like? Mm. And and then, you know, and I reloaded his gun, put it back where I found it, and that was the end of that. Um, you know, he, he and, and he never knew that that happened. Some time went by again. I, I don't remember. I think I was about 10 or 11 when that happened. Maybe I was a little bit younger. And then when I was 11 years old, a friend of mine that lived in the neighborhood, he said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to this church and they've got this, you know, summer thing, this vacation Bible school thing going on. You know, why don't, why don't you come with me one night? You know, I got free Kool-Aid and cookies. I said, okay, I'm in. Let's go. Do Kool-Aid would definitely do that too. <laughs> Particularly if it's cherry. Oh my God! Yeah, so yeah, I was in. Yeah, <laughs> man, bro. Yeah, I went with him. You know, it was it was fun. It was a getaway. It was a way to get out of the house, and that was really the only thing I was looking for. I was just looking for a way to get out of the house. You know, and I started going out of that church a little bit, and you know, afterwards, even you know, start going Sundays a little bit, and in the meantime, something happened in my granddaddy's life. And it, it was a profound thing that happened for my granddaddy because I didn't know this, this side of my grandfather. The only part of my granddaddy that I knew was this angry, bitter, you know, overly zealous, drinks too much guy. That's all I knew about him. And I came home one day and there was a Bible sitting on the kitchen table where he sat and drank coffee. It was this old beat up, tattered gray Bible. Um, and that Bible used to sit in a cabinet or a table in our living room. And I'd never seen him touch it, but it'd been in that cabinet for, you know, all these years. And I would learn later that that old beat up tattered Bible that he was reading was the same Bible that he used to carry with him all over the United States. And he would preach all over the place. And I don't know what happened in my granddad's life between the point that he was a traveling evangelist and the point that I met him. But something happened in his life where he crawled into a bottle and and he stayed there for many years. But, you know, his, his account of this is that, you know, one day he was by himself at home. You know, God convicted him of, of the life of living. And my dad, my granddaddy knelt down on the couch and used that couch like an altar. And he prayed and asked God to forgive him for the way he'd been living his life. And, and he surrendered back to God. And then he stood up and he went over the cabinet and got that Bible back out of it. And he began to read it. Um, you know, when he quit, he, he put the alcohol away. He quit drinking. He got sober. And then, you know, he started attending a church again. Well, the, you know, at the time I was going to this little Baptist church in the community. You know, my granddad didn't grow up in a Baptist church. He grew up in more of a Pentecostal background. So he went to a church that he was, you know, more grounded in, in, in that world of, of Pentecostalism. So then it came to the point where we just got up on Sunday mornings and we went to different churches. But, you know, now we were a, quote, church going family. You know, there's, there's the happy ending of the story, right? That's that's exactly what everybody uh you know wants to hear that's the ending of the good book that's the that's the final chapter of the great movie and uh i i wish i could say that a couple years went by and you know i was i was 13 years old i, I began to have this deep conviction inside of 
myself that I knew just as two years prior when, when I had met Christ and surrendered my life to Jesus, I knew that God was telling me to go and, and preach the gospel. And I had zero desire to do that. I didn't even like talking in front of people. And I am convinced that God's telling me to go preach. And I don't even like being in group, you know, in guy in class that's got to give a report, you know, make me last. I don't want to talk in front of anybody. That was way outside of my comfort zone. So I went to my pastor and we prayed about it for many weeks until I just, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't get away from, from that urge and that conviction. So finally I, I surrendered to it. I said, I, I believe God telling me to preach. So my pastor was obedient to that and he allowed me to, to pursue that calling. And, you know, I started preaching a little bit, you know, how much a 13 year old kid can preach, you know, little churches in the countryside that had pastors that took pity on a kid would let me preach every so often. You know, my granddaddy had a little nursing home ministry and he'd take me out on Monday nights and set up his little PA system and he'd sing a little bit for the folks in the nursing home and he'd take me with him and let me preach and uh, you know, that's kind of how I got my feet wet, starting to preach. And then, you know, time went by. I got older. You know, I got out of high school. I was um, 17 when I graduated high school in, you know, spring of uh, 2008. After I graduated high school, I got very, very busy preaching. I was preaching at some church somewhere from the time I graduated high school until the very end of the year, that entire, you know, year period, I was just absolutely booked. You know, even before high school was out, I would, you know, every Sunday I was preaching somewhere and then, you know, up to school on Monday morning. I, I didn't realize what I was being prepared for in that moment, but God, I, you know, I, I know now that God was kind of preparing me for a, a different chapter of my life. And you know, I started off in the beginning of this saying that, you know, I wrote a book about this and, and I think that there's a good parallel there to the way our lives are and the way that we view them and the way that we narrate them is through the lens of a book. And, you know, every good fairy tale starts off, you know, upon a time. And then you begin the, the details of the book. And then, you know, there's chapters in every book. And, and I went through some dark chapters, you know, early on. Um, and, and now I'm writing these more, these more glorious, more, uh, more, more grace filled, more happy, more joyous chapters in my life. Finally, you know, there's finally some light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. Uh, things aren't as gloom and doom as what they were. You know, I'm not a, a little kid sitting on his heels, listening to the grownups fight anymore. You know, now we, you know, we pray over every tiny thing. You know, I went worried if someone's going to throw a bottle across the room to wondering if he's ever going to shut up so we can eat instead of praying all night long. I mean, that was the 180 that my granddad did. I mean, I'm, and I, this sounds like a joke. This is not a joke. And this is the God's honest truth. So help me. My granddaddy would not eat a Twinkie without praying over that thing before he <laughs> ate it. Hey, man, listen, when you got a good Twinkie and that cream filling, hey, that can make oh, you go and scream brother. hallelujah easily. So I get it. I get it. Make a make a Baptist speak in tongues, Absolutely. man. Absolutely. <laughs> and if it's a fried Twinkie, yeah, you're about to go ahead and speak in tongues and, and fall out. Oh, <laughs> preach, preach. Mm. I grew up in, in, in that way, way, you know, that far left field. And now I'm in this far right. You know, it's like this 180 that my life is in. So I'm writing these more joyous chapters that aren't quite as dark and 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 sad and pathetic. You know, I'm, I'm finally, you know, living this decent lifestyle. I mean, I'm 17 years old and I'm a regular traveling and you know I'm 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 enjoying what I'm doing. I, I feel this sense of purpose and fulfillment uh, in my life, and I'm you know I'm even able to. Uh, at this point, you know, share some of these chapters of my life with, you know, churches and, and congregations that would hear me, you know, and share some of these details about you know, how there's freedom from our past and there's freedom from the generational curses and, and we're not, you know, don't have to be held down by the sins of our parents and our grandparents and that, you know, that there's grace to, for God to 
bring us out of those things. And I'm, I'm happily hearing that message. And then, you know, it was same year after I graduated high school, it was the end of the year. Um, I was in a long relationship with the church where I was preaching for them very, very consistently for quite a while. They didn't have a pastor. They had me filling in for them. I didn't realize they were kind of interviewing me, so to speak, to be their pastor. But I got a phone call from another pastor uh, who wanted me to come preach for his church that he had just left. So I went to that church and I preached there and I felt this great urgency to be with that church. So I went to the other one that I'd been at for some year and I, I told him I have to leave and go be with this other church and preach with them and pray with them. Uh, and they approached me and asked me to be their pastor. I immediately said, well, let me, let me pray about it. And uh, I left and I went home and I'm still living at home. Okay. With, with my grandparents at this point. And my granddad's a good man of God, a good praying man, a man that loves the Lord with all his heart and his soul, uh, a man that I see is deep in the word. And I come home and I said, hey, this church asked me to be their pastor. And I expected him to say, well, that's, you know, let's pray about that together and let's wait for, you know, clarity on that. And his immediate reaction was he looked me dead in the eye and without thought, he said the words, so you told him no that you're not old enough to do that, right? And I said, well, no, I I told him I'd pray about it. And that was absolutely not the correct answer. <laughs> and my granddad looked at me and he said, well, I promise you this, that's not God telling you to do that because God doesn't call 18-year-olds to be pastors. And I didn't know what to do with that. I prayed about it and some time went on. I prayed about it. My granddad was so harsh in that response that it kind of scared me, I guess. And again, you got to remember the relationship I've got with my granddaddy, and it's one of questionless subservience. You know, you just do as you're told. You know, his words were, if I tell you to jump, I only want you to say how high. You know, that was his way of life. Um, and the people that were in his life had to live by that. So I went back and I told that church, no, I can't be your pastor. In the meantime, I had a church call me. They wanted me to be their youth pastor. I had met with them. We had a good meeting. Everything went well. Rather, all but set stone. They said, well, we just got to have a meeting with you know, the church, vote on it. So it was kind of understood. This is just the, you know, the, the rigmarole that we have to go through. We got to go through the, the steps and the motions, you know, to finalize this. But th this is done. So. The day after they were supposed to have had that meeting, I get the phone call from that pastor expecting him to call me and say, hey, I had the vote, you know, when can, when can you come? Uh, and he called me and said, hey, I wanted to let you know, we had a few people that couldn't make it to that meeting last night and we're not going to be able to have it until next week. And I just wanted to let you know that and make sure that everything's okay. And I said, well, actually, I need you to let me pray over some things and figure some things out. So he, he blessed me and let me do that. And I began to pray again and finally settled on what I had to do. So I went home, first time in my life that I've ever done this. I sat down with my granddaddy and I looked my granddaddy dead in the eye. And with all the in the world for myself, I said, I don't need your permission to serve God. Mm. I'm just wondering if I have your blessing and your support, but I'm going to be obedient with or without your support. And I honestly didn't know if he was going to cry and tell me he was sorry, or if he was going to get up and punch me. <laughs> there was, there was absolute silence. And I, I could see his, you know, I could, I knew my granddad, I could see his jaw clenched and, I, I just knew he was absolutely irate. And he looked me dead in the eye and in a very calm way, yet very deliberate, he said to me, I will never support the work of the devil and you are getting set up, you and that whole church to fail. And I'm not supporting the devil and I'll never step foot in the church that the devil is run. So I looked at him and I said, well, okay then, good night. And I went to bed. It wasn't long after that that, you know, I decided, okay, it's time to be a big boy. And I went and found a place, found a rad old up apartment and that I could afford. I moved out, got my own place. This was three days before Christmas, the year that I graduated from high school. I got two full-time jobs. I was working 
you know, eight, 70 to 90 hours a week working myself to death. I would work th two, three days straight, one job to the next, back to the other one, two or three days straight um, before I would ever sleep for a day. And that was how I got by. I always said that, you know, I was trying to support my habit of preaching <laughs> and that's how I, I paid the rent and uh, got myself by. I, I finally reached that point in my life. You know, I, I, I had not really ever been seriously dating anyone that wasn't a thing on my radar. I dated some, but you know, I wasn't out running around looking for a wife, but met somebody. We started to date and the next thing you know, I'm 20 and we're getting married and we, we got married. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pause, pause. Um, let's go back to this. Working mm -hmm. over 60 hours and uh -huh. you still had to muster up some type of strength to still preach on Sunday. And maybe yeah. some other, maybe some other time, and mm. then you still found time to date at that same time, bro. <laughs> I don't know what kind of, I, I don't know what Red Bull or what kind of something you was hocked up <laughs> on, but jeez, boy, how that's incredible. Yeah, looking back, you know that literally that lifestyle nearly killed me. Um, I didn't I'm sure. live that life too long. I had done that for a while until I realized I couldn't. And what taught me I couldn't was January of 2009. I met on New Year's Eve. I met a guy. We became very good friends. And he wanted to meet, you know, to sit down, talk about some things and had some things going on in his life. He needed someone to cancel with him. And, and I met him on New Year's Eve. And I'd been awake for like two days when I met him and I said, dude, I'd love to come by and meet you. You know, I know we're both, you know, we got time today, but I had to go home and go to bed because it's new year's Eve. We're at a new year's Eve service at a church. So we're at the church all night long. And I left the church and then went to work at like 5 AM. And I had got off work to go to the church. And then it went straight back and I got off around 2, 2.30 in the afternoon. I'd been awake for going on three days at this point. And I'd kind of caught like my fourth wind, apparently. And I just had that little burst of energy. And I'm like, well, you know, he doesn't live that far away. It's only like 45 minutes. I, you know, so I got my truck and I drove to go see him. And I woke up upside down in a ditch. Uh, oh. You know, I, I fell asleep at the wheel. I rolled my truck um, and ended up on top of the you know the top of the truck down into a ditch um and walked away from that literally with with not a scratch i walked away from a, with a sore shoulder for a few days from where the seat belt had kind of locked up on me uh but but walked out of that you know only by the grace of god that was kind of the moment, one of the moments that taught me okay it, you know you can't live like this forever it's no. time to pick a job so i picked a job wow. and i kind of slowed down a little bit Wow. But so I, I, some time went by, you know, I finally made time to date after that, got married. Um, just after we got married, uh, my wife went to the doctor and she came home and she said um, that a, a cancer screening done and that there were some things that they said that you might not have been great that you might need to get looked at. I said, okay. So some time went by. My wife had a job where she worked like all night long at a nursing home. She was like, you know, she did laundry and stuff like that, housekeeping and stuff. And my job was, you know, during the day. So I was at home in bed. It's like five o'clock in the morning and I get a phone call from the nursing home that she worked at. And it's one of the nurses. And they said, hey, we want to call and let you know real quick that your wife, we had, we went ahead and called an ambulance for her because uh, she had a seizure while she was at work. Um, and just to be safe, we went ahead and called an ambulance for her. So they're taking her to the hospital. And I said, okay. So I got up and went to the hospital. I literally beat the ambulance to the hospital. And, you know, she had pretty well kind of come to at that point. They asked me, you know, has she ever had a seizure? And I said, not since we've met. You know, she's never had one that I know of. She said, no, I've, I've never had one. So um, this was Sunday morning. And, you know, we're in the hospital now and, and they're waiting on some test results to come back. So I had to step outside, make some phone calls to deal with some things, the church for that morning. I come back into the hospital room and there was a doctor sitting with my wife and my wife had this absolutely horrified look on her face. And I said, what did I miss? And the doctor said, well, we've we've found a mass on your wife's brain uh, that that 
caused the seizure, we believe, and um, we, we need to surgically remove it. it. It's substantial. So they immediately called an ambulance. They took her to a, uh, a hospital, you know, hour and a half away in St. Louis, one of the larger hospitals that deals with, you know, things like that. I'm, you know, I, I, I couldn't literally didn't even have the money to go to the hospital. You know, we're not living large here. Um, we're getting by. And I, I didn't even have the money to drive all the hospital, um, have the gas money. So my granddad lived just up the road from the hospital. So I drove to my grandfather's house and I beat on his door. This is like seven o'clock in the morning. And I'm just pounding his front door until my granddad opens the door. And, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely frantic and beside myself trying to talk at this point. And I finally calmed down long enough to tell him what's going on. And, you know, my granddaddy did exactly what he would have done with anybody in that circumstance. You know, he, he said, well, here, he, you know, gave me enough money to get gas. And then, um, and then he said, well, let's pray real quick. And we prayed before I left and, uh, I got my car. We drove, I drove to St. Louis. They did a surgery, did a craniotomy, took the tumor out of my wife's brain. I had to give her some, some, uh, radiation treatments, uh, some chemo treatments after that came back. The uh, tumor that was in her brain was, was cancerous. It was uh, melanoma for, for anyone that doesn't know what melanoma is. It's um, a lot of people like to call it skin cancer, but it's actually bigger than that. Um, melanoma is actually one of the most aggressive types of cancer and it's cancer of the pigment cells and pigment cells are what make up your skin, but it's also, they are all throughout our body. And um, melanoma can present in, in many different places other than just, you know, little skin lesions like most people are used to. Um, my wife's did present as a skin lesion. She had what she thought was a wart that popped up her, on her lip and she couldn't get rid of that wart and figured out that that was actually cancerous. So when they took out the tumor, they took that little thing off her, that wart that she thought she had, they took that off too. That was cancerous. Um so we began the long road of cancer treatments, you know, constant trips to the doctor to get scans, get checked out. And some, you know, time went by of all these treatments. Um, you know, she lost her hair. Well, she began to lose her hair, you know, shaved her head, you know, dealt with the pain and the, the, the fatigue that comes with uh, radiation and, and chemotherapy treatments. Doing well, she was f starting to kind of do better and then went into remission. You know, we, we got excited for that. The doctor used the R word and she went into remission for a while. She was good for several months. And then uh, she went back for a checkup and came uh, home after that checkup appointment and found out that the cancer had actually come back. Uh, this time it had come back in, in a great way. Um, it, it was spread all throughout her, her internal organs. It was spread throughout her brain. Um, very, very small lesions that were all throughout that were inoperable. Um, they were so small they, could, they couldn't operate, but there were so many of them that they couldn't remove them. So some time went by and uh, she began to deteriorate and eventually deteriorated to the point that um, she ended up on hospice care. Uh, the doctor her, her doctors told me that you know if we if I stop treating her today, uh, you know I would give her three to six months. They put her on treat they put her on hospice care on a Sunday night. They brought her home. Hospice came. They you know brought everything that hospice does, a hospital bed and oxygen machine and all the things that hospice invade your house with. Um, they set everything up. A hospice nurse came in, you know, sat with us and talked about everything that we needed to know. And I, I remember, I asked the hospice nurse, I've seen the condition that my wife was in and it was absolutely grave. And I asked the nurse this question. I said, I don't know how to say this and it not sound crude. How can this happen in the least painful way, but the quickest way? And the nurse, all she said to me was just do exactly what that bottle says. And she was referring to uh, the medicine, the pain medicine that they had prescribed her. I remember standing my kid that night after everybody had left and I was home. It was just me and, and her in the other room. She hadn't woke up in 24 hours. You know, she was absolutely comatose to the world. 
Um, she was, you know, on a more, she was on morphine at this point. She, she had spoken or opened her eyes in 24 hours. I mean, she was basically gone at that point, but I stood in my kitchen and I prayed and I said, God, if you're going to take her home, then just take her home. The next day was Monday. We had planned three to six months of this adventure. Um, I went to work that day. Um, my wife uh, was at home, sat with her, made sure that, you know, she gave her her medicine throughout the day and, you know, keep an eye on her while I was at work. I left that morning, went to work. About lunchtime, my phone rang and uh, it was her and she was frantic and she said, Corey, she's not breathing. And I said, well, I said, okay, um, call the hospice nurse. So um, I think I think she called 911. So they they sent uh, like first responders to my house. So I, I got home and um, they had already pronounced her dead by the time I got home. She had literally been on hospice for 24 hours mm. before she passed. Wow. And I got home before the coroner even arrived or, or before the funeral home arrived. Fam, you know, some family showed up. We said goodbye and, um, you know, prepared, made the funeral preparations, um, had her funeral that I, that I spoke at, got done uh, with the funeral. Um, and the first thing that, you know, I thought, my first thought when my phone rang and they said, she's not breathing, my very first thought was to call my granddaddy. But I couldn't call my granddaddy because three months prior to that, my granddaddy had a heart attack out of nowhere and died. Oh, man. And when my granddaddy died, we went from having a very, very contentious relationship to having a very, very close relationship. And that was my best friend in my life. And we had grown so close. And uh, so I, I lost my best friend the day my granddaddy died. My wife passed three months later after my granddaddy died. Three months after my wife passed, uh, my aunt, um, it was actually my grand, my mom's father's sister. Uh, she, without really reason, passed uh, very unexpectedly. She was very, very close to me. Um, she was very, very pivotal in helping care for my wife when she was going through treatments. It, you know, my aunt would take her to these appointments if I couldn't, you know, two hours away. Um, very instrumental in, in her life and especially the last days of her life where she was beginning to deteriorate. My aunt was very pivotal in helping care for her in those days. And then three months later, she passed. So now I'm in this place in my life where, you know, I'm, I'm preaching the goodness and the grace and the love of Jesus, but I've just lost three of the people that are closest to me in my life in less than a year. And my mind is again in a whirlwind. And now I'm writing the dark chapters again. So put me on to that. No. Put me on to that, Corey. So you're up on stage. When we see preachers, you know, we just uh, oftentimes people feel like, hey, they got a good life. They will, they seem like everything is going good for them. So there it is that you're up there and you lost three people, two people within within a three month span. And then here comes your aunt and you're up there. As you said, you're preaching about the goodness of the Lord, love of the Lord and how good God is. You're trying to keep it together. We see Corey on the stage preaching well what is Corey behind the mic and when the church doors are closed what is he really thinking at that time that, that's a hard question to answer when i stood up to preach I, I i was i was the preacher that i had always been i was the passionate emboldened preacher that i had always been um that you know, I I feel like I put on I put on my Sunday face, and you know, I went to church on Sundays, and I would preach, and and I was kind of putting on this facade. I was putting on this mask that, that 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 covered up, you know, what was really going on inside of me. But I I don't think I so much had a different presentation as I did a different demonstration of where I was. Because 
the truth of it is that what I preached was still truth. What I preached was still biblical truth that I still let God speak through. You know, I, one thing I've always, and I, I sound prideful in talking about humility. <laughs> like, I tried to not become arrogant when I preach I, because I know, quite frankly, I'm not that good. I'm not, <laughs> if, if it's my merit to say, you know, I was preaching good it's then that's a horrible scale to judge something by um just manages to take some old heck like me and and let them come out of it that's intelligible um but to answer the question more directly i I think anybody knew what was really happening inside of me because i don't think i knew what was really happening inside of me I was using everything as an outlet to distract me because I didn't want to deal with what was inside of me. So I, I focused on work and with those things. I was going to some random person's house and just hanging out, you know, friends after work or whatever. I, I tried to occupy myself all the time and I tried to stay active because every time I took time to not be active, when I started to find out what was inside of me, and I hated what was inside of me. And what was inside of me was this, this deep, dark feeling of absolute anger. And I, it, it took me a while to process that and realize that, you know, that was one of the marks of depression I felt so angry. I don't know. I didn't know any other way to describe it, but I was just angry. This was even noticeable to people I was around, you know, at work. My boss would tell me, dude, I don't know what's wrong with you, but, you know, you, you're really edgy. You're, you always seem like you're ticked off. You're always, you know, going off on people. And, you know, you need to take a step back and, you know, get your head in the game. And finally, one day, I just, I, I just exploded. And on one of my friends at work, my boss at work, you know, I said to him, I, I said, I don't know why I'm always pissed off, but I am. And I'm doing everything I can to not let that be shown. But it's starting to boil over. That that was what was going on inside of me. And I would deal with myself some in the best way I knew how. I, I, I got kind of destructive with the way I was dealing with myself. You know, again, I, I grew up in a pretty addictive atmosphere. Um, you know, I, I don't know if I addictive personality is the way to say it, but, you know, I, I found myself trying to numb that pain um, with with all kinds of things. I never got into drugs and, you know, I never got in, in that. I, I developed a gambling problem. Um, I, I was... I would I would drive two hours to go to a casino and then I would spend all night at that casino, you know, playing cards and sometimes win money. Sometimes I'd lose my butt. Uh, but I was there not really because, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I did enjoy it, but I was there because there was a sense of control and and and, and um, there was a sense of of pride and accomplishment that came with that and especially when you're winning and you have that false sense of superiority when someone's patting you on the back and they're saying hey you're doing a great job man come on yeah 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 come on keep going you know all they're trying to do is get you to keep playing so you can lose your money but i thrived on that because i I came to the conclusion that playing cards was about one of the only few things i was actually legitimately good at that became kind of an outlet for me so there was a couple of moments where, you know, I, I did that and got myself into a little money jam a couple of times to where I, I realized, okay, I'm, I'm getting into a problem here and I could see myself down that slippery slope. So you know, I managed to reel myself back before I did. Um, I never fell into quote unquote, you know, addiction, so to speak, uh, though on the edge of that, that, that was a dark way that I found to try to numb pain but 
the only thing that I was doing was lying to myself. And I was trying to avoid the truth because the truth was every night that I got home after I was done avoiding things, you know, finally at home and the door was shut and the lights were shut off. It was just absolute. It was that absolute anger and it was absolute empty. It, it was going from a life of having someone with you all the time to now being dead silent all the time going home after work expecting two or three or four people to be in the house and it was me alone with my thoughts and that was absolutely frightening to me to be to be stuck in a room with me was absolutely frightening to me um so i i finally i finally was trying to figure out the best way to to numb <laughs> Not to numb, but 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 to work through where my head was at. I started dating just shortly after my wife passed away. Actually, I started dating. Um, I went on a date with somebody, and things went well. You know, we dated for a while, and um, then things didn't go well for a while. You know, we 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 had some things that came up. We we just broke it off. You know, no big deal. We were still friends. We had one of those kind of on again, off again dating relationships. And then I did exactly what every sane person does, said no one ever. I, I went through this moment in my life where I, I thought, okay, I, I can't lose anyone else close to me. I, I just can't deal with that anymore. So I decided to do what my mom did. And I was going to move to a different state, move close to my parent, and try to start my life over fresh. So I, I resigned my church. I left, I gave notice at my job. I sold everything that I owned minus, you know, the clothes on my back and, uh, you know, a few things that could fit into one pickup truck. And I moved to Indianapolis and I moved into my mom's spare bedroom in her apartment. I got two jobs. You know, I, I worked 60 hours a week and found a church to go to on Sundays. That was good for me. You know, I, I was trying, I don't know what I was trying to prevent or what I was trying to avoid um, or what I was trying to not create. But I felt like there was just this grand purpose to this move. Like, you know, this is the hit the reset button on my life and that this is where it all resets and it's got to get better from here. It surely can't get worse. From, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm absolutely just gutted to the point that I, I wasn't even the same person anymore. And like the, the guy you're talking to right now is not the person you would have talked to then. Quite frankly, if you would have met me in at the end of 2014 to the beginning of 2015, you probably would have cut me out and said, I don't want to be anywhere near that dude because I was not a pleasant person to be around. I was this absolute alter ego version of myself you know almost like the dr jekyll and mr hyde thing i mean i had completely turned into someone that i hated um i made the move got two jobs i was busy with all that stuff of you know making preparations to move and moving and looking for a new job and getting used to the new place and the new area learning new things and all that stuff and, and after all of that time after that kind of faded down I found myself in the same mental place, but a different geographical place. Mm. And I realized I'm still the same bitter, angry, pissed off guy that I, that I was when I attempted. And this was supposed to fix it yet. Here I am. So you've used different methods to take care of this anger that you had ran away say all right let me go to another let me relocate and let me see what can happen here so basically you pull the jacob type of move and yeah. let me let me move and see what this is going to do so now trying different things whatever were your vices and then moving was not changing anything for you when did it finally hit you like yo i'm at i'm now basically at a serious crossroads here that's a good question i think one of the th one of the moments that made me realize that this may have been the absolute wrong choice 
when I moved to India to Indianapolis, I I immediately wanted to pursue ministry opportunities because you know all I've known is ministry since I was 13 years old is to preach, and I love to preach the gospel. And and I'm you know now I'm 24 years old, and this is this is my life is the ministry, and I want to be in the ministry. I want to preach. So I made some connections with some guys um, at a, a local um, organization there. I made a contact at that organization. I went there, sat down with the president, and we, we had a, a talk and you know told him who I was and where I was from and here's my history. And instead of instead of any encouragement, instead of any like, you know, that's great. We're glad you're here. Let's, you know, let's see what we can do. Let's see how we can help you, you know, maneuver here. I, I got about a 30 minute lecture on how important that it was that I go to a Bible college, um, a, a, a strong recommendation of the one that was there locally. Um, and and again, further implication of how uh, good it would do me if I would go to one. And that's what I walked away from that meeting with was basically just a kick in the nuts from this guy that was supposed to be the contact that was going to help me be, get somewhat established here, um, point me in a direction. Um, and and quite, he didn't help me at all. Did nothing more than, than, you know, help me wallow a little bit deeper in the emotion I was already wallowing in. So I walked away from that. I felt like the door of opportunity for ministry was just abs- was just shut in front of me. Knowing that made me made me step back and look at that and say, "Oh my God, what have I done?" There was a church back home, four hours away, that had scheduled me to preach a revival service for them um, prior to this, and I, I kept that commitment. And I drove down for a few days that year and preached for them. And then I went back home to Indianapolis. And that was the only time that in in that season, that was the only time I preached. It was back in Illinois at home where I was from, not locally where I was now living. I never got one phone call to preach anywhere up there. Not one. My phone would not quit ringing at home where I was from. When I was available, my, my phone was constantly ringing to preach. I was turning people down because I was already preaching. So this was new territory for me, was the moment of, okay, ministry's all but over for me. That was horrifying. And that was a moment that made me think, okay, maybe, maybe I messed up. Maybe, maybe I didn't make the right choice. So that, that lasted about six months. And I had, the, the girl I'd started dating a little bit off and on, you know, before that, we, we still dated off and on, but long distance dated. Don't recommend that. Uh, but we long distance dated and went to visit each other a little bit. You know, I would come down the weekends and she would come up every so often until finally one day I got gutsy and I just decided to go for it. So I showed up out of nowhere one day with a ring and I said, will you marry me? And surprisingly, she said yes. So we made plans. I moved back to where I just moved from um, six months later. I went back to the place that I used to work. Uh, the place I used to work, that guy kept asking me to come back to work because things weren't ever the same since I'd left. So I went back to the same job that I had before. The church that I used to pastor that I left, and I came back, I actually preached for them a little Came back. They still hadn't found a pastor. Uh, so about a year went by, um, of, since I had left the church and the, they had still not found a pastor yet. They still hadn't found anybody who they felt God was calling to be their pastor. They had a lot of guys come in and preach. So then I came back to preach a little bit. So I ended up going back to that church as their pastor again. Me and Sarah got married. Uh, One day we were out shopping. We bumped into my old landlords of the house that I lived in before I moved. Me and Sarah, my wife, my second wife, Sarah, uh, we seen them and uh, they jokingly asked me, when are you going to move back into the house? And I said, well, we're in a lease on her place right now. And it's going to take us three months to get, you know, until if you want to hold it empty until then. We'll move in. And I said that jokingly, and they just looked at each other and looked at us and said, okay, just promise us you'll move into it. So they left their rental property completely empty for three months. Wow. Um, and we moved back into it. So uh, in, in a year, 
after I moved back to Southern Illinois, God fully restored my ministry. He restored my job and even the house that I that I walked away from. God restored all of it in less than a year. Amazing. Yo, world, hopefully you're enjoying this session with Corey Hall. But this just concludes part one. Stay tuned for part two.